You're listening to Drek FM. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. Welcome, everyone, to the 602 Club. It's good to be back after, uh, well, being at Star Wars a Celebration Palooza uh, last weekend. As I'm recording this year on April uh, the 17th, or the 18th. I can't even remember what day it is because I haven't had a lot of sleep uh, even since then. And uh, But it was great um, and uh, had a wonderful time. You can check out my Twitter if you want to hear what, what I talked about because we're not talking about that tonight. We're not doing anything Star Wars related. We're doing aliens that's right because we're working our way towards alien covenant and uh, we're not going to cover all the aliens films we're just going to cover these two and then we'll cover that when it comes out and i'm so excited to be here with none other than brandon shamatola how's it going brandon i'm doing pretty darn good here but i gotta say this cornbread is just terrible it is i don't know who's serving this but uh ruby should take it off the menu because it's not good i want some water so, to wash this down that's all i need tonight is some water to wash uh, this something i so uh maybe something stronger at this point uh but <laughs> before we uh do dive into aliens just of course want to remind everybody you can find all the shows here we do at trek fm and on trek fm on iTunes uh, at iTunes.com slash TrekFM. We're a feature provider there in iTunes, and it really does help us out uh, when you hit us up with some star ratings and reviews. And have a huge thanks to um, some people recently who have uh, taken it upon themselves to go to the 602 Club on iTunes and give us some star ratings and reviews. And I really appreciate everybody doing that. I know it takes a few minutes to do that. And so uh, thank you so much, Luke S155, uh, for doing that for us. And uh, goodness, um, yeah, thank you. I mean, gosh, 71 star ratings and reviews, uh, five stars all the way. Really appreciate it. It means a lot to me. Uh, you can also find us, of course, on Twitter at TrekFM, Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. And we've got our listeners-only discussion group, the Babel Conference, you can check out. We talk about everything under the sun, Star Trek, and then, of course, the stuff we're talking about here with the 602 Club. Uh, make sure you do that. It, go to the Facebook, it, type Babel into the search field there, or if you are on our website at trek.fm, you will see a little part that says discussion uh, on any of the menu bars there, and uh, that'll take you right to our listeners-only discussion group. So... Well, uh, Brandon, before I watched this movie, uh, I had a question for some friends of mine, and uh, I I know they're huge Alien fans, and, and the question was, theatrical or special edition? And uh, I'm wondering, one, which version did you end up going with? I actually watched both in preparation for this. So I've got the, uh, the Blu-ray release that came out a few years ago, and I picked it up for a really great deal on Amazon. It was 20 bucks Canadian when I bought it on a Black Friday a couple years ago. And I mean, like, that's dirt cheap. So uh, I, I couldn't pass it up. And I haven't actually had a chance to watch any of them until going through this podcast with you. So I watched both of them. Uh, but honestly, this is the one that I would say you really need to watch the director's cut for. this The, the special edition, as it's called. It's actually not called the, the director's cut. But uh, this is actually, the cool thing about this is it's one of the first ever 
extended cuts of a film that was released. Like this and Blade Runner are like the first two, and this came out on Laserdisc in 1990. And it, this has basically been deemed the canon version of the film. You know, you can watch it and fully understand the film without watching the director's cut. Um, I watched it first in the theatrical cut. Um, and it's it's easily understandable. You don't really miss a lot. But there's a little bit more character development in the extended version of the film. Yeah, uh, um, I did not have time because of <laughs> not being at home the last weekend uh, to be able to watch both. And I have seen the theatrical version years ago. But uh, the thing that uh, drew me into the special edition was uh, at the open of it, uh, James Cameron comes on and talks about how this is his preferred cut. Mm -hmm. And that, uh, you know, he desired this to actually be the one in theaters, but everybody was so worried about having a movie be two hours and 34 minutes long. And it it really reminded me of... um, the way in which, you know, what happened last year with Batman v Superman, and, and honestly, I believe that that director's edition is way better in uh, and, and the canon version of the film that I would think of now and the only one I watch uh, because it was a better version of the movie. And I think, uh, you know, watching through this, I could see why the director, James Cameron, really likes this edition because those character moments create more of a sense of belonging for the different characters and I think that is important because if you ask me that's one thing that was kind of missing from the first movie a little bit is that I didn't always necessarily care about the characters as much as I thought I should but I feel like this one does a good enough job especially you know um, revealing you know Ripley was a mother and her kid's already dead and so that really uh, has a lot to do with her relationship with Newt um, you know, those kind of things and just even having more time with the different crew members uh, was really helpful as well. So, uh, you know, I, I like this version of the movie and, you know, I, I'd probably say this would be the one I'd, I'd end up watching when I watch the film again just because of what it does for um, the film in general. And I, I, I think I agree with Cameron, you know, and, and to me, uh, something Mike Schindler uh, here on the network has always said, you know, it he likes the version of the film that a director prefers, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and so if a director thinks that their movie is better in a certain version, they probably have some good reasons for that. So, you know, at this point, I'll take JC's word for it. And no, I don't mean Jesus. Well, the interesting thing about this is the the director's cut of this film is only 17 or 18 minutes longer. It's not that much longer. but What's added to the film with it is a significant amount. I'm just I'm surprised that they would have that much trouble releasing a film that's only 18 minutes longer. This is a thing for studios. You know, honestly, they just want the movie to be in the theater as many times as possible. You know, I mean, it really comes down to dollars, which we'll talk about later with corporations and, you know, money. That's kind of what they're that's the bottom line Mm -hmm. is the bottom line. And it's it's frustrating because, you know, a film is an art form and it's disappointing to see artists have their work cut up. Uh, it reminds me of the Billy Joel song, The Entertainer, when he says, um, you know, you spend all your life writing this song and they cut it down to 305. You know, it had to be a certain length. If your song goes over, they cut it down and, and kind of ruin your artistic creative ability there. Uh, all to fit within some 
you know, semblance of, of desired radio order, right? And that happens with film, too. And it's frustrating to see that suffer. You know, uh, for me, too, I, I like the extended version of the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit films better, personally. Uh, and those are the only ones that I own or watch. Uh, and so, you know, uh, there's value, I think, to, uh, to, to either. But if you're asking me, as long as the, the material is just not completely overly self-indulgent, you know, uh, and it actually has some meaning towards the film, uh, I don't have a problem with it being a longer movie. Mm-hmm. You know, just have that material make the movie better. If it, it but you know, and on, on the other side, sometimes movies are just better if you cut certain things out. You know, it it goes both ways. And so, um, you know, because tightening something up or or you know, uh, honing in on a character arc by you know maybe removing a few things that makes it stronger. Uh, you know, so. But here, I, I I definitely enjoyed watching this version of the movie for sure. Yeah, like Alien, um, the director's cut that was created for the quadrilogy that came out uh, was Ridley Scott has an intro very much in the same manner as James Cameron. And he says, you know, my preferred version of the film is is the theatrical cut. But I mean, they were going to make this special edition for the Blu-ray release or the DVD release. So I might as well put my fingers on it. And all he did was trim up a few scenes and add one deleted scene into the movie, right? He didn't really change it. And he still says that his favorite version is the theatrical version. And same with, uh, uh, I think it's Jean-Pierre Genet, uh, who did Alien Resurrection. Uh, He said the same thing. He was happy with the theatrical cut. He didn't want to make the special edition, but they kind of made him make it for, for the box set release. Well, and, and you know what? That kind of like leads me into something that I really caught hold of in this film, which is this whole theme of human folly and basically hubris <laughs> and the way in which it, it, this whole movie puts on display that idea um, and, and really how we can be our own worst enemies for different reasons. You know, I mean... It, and it kind of starts at the beginning of the movie, you know, when Ripley's found, she comes back, and the company doesn't want to believe her story because it's going to hurt their bottom line in the end, like um, because it would it would it would make them have to change the way that they are doing things, and so instead they'll just see her as being somebody who's you know a psychologically damaged survivor. Uh, and basically is probably just making this up, you know, and, and, but it was just, I mean, how many times have, you know, we seen stories of corporations with the whistleblower and they do everything they can to smear the person coming out and saying something's wrong here. And it turns out there was something wrong there, you know, like it's that that just desire to find the easy way, get that easy money. Again, I'm quoting a Billy Joel song. Mm-hmm. Um, is 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 crazy to me, and just uh, really the idea of human folly is just fully on display in this movie. But if you look at the context of the time frame, like how often was that a, a trope in films in '86 when this came out? Was it 
you know, I don't, I have no clue off the top of my head. Is that something that's always been done in film and stories of how the big corporation is looking out for themselves only? Or is this something that just has kind of happened more and more as our society becomes a little darker? You know, like this is, I, I don't know. You know, that is a, I think that's a good question. Uh, I think that's a good film question. Uh, Quick, call Mike. Hold on one second. Yeah, um, Mike Schindler's not here to let us know, and he totally could. Um, but I'm thinking of, uh, you know, at that point, we've had a lot of that in the 80s. You know, uh, Wall Street, the movie, is actually going to come out a year after this. And so I think, you know, all, definitely something that Oliver Stone kind of hits in, in that film. Um, and I think probably, you know, I, I, I think the 80s were a time of, of definitely seeing corporations become more and more powerful that's for sure mm-hmm. and um governments and and all that kind of stuff too and uh, so it doesn't surprise me to see this um and it was interesting because again like all good science fiction especially like star trek you know you can put it in space in the future and remove it a little bit the context from where we are now and be able to say things to people that they might not like if the movie was you know, set in the now. Current, yeah. You know, and I mean, quote unquote, the now, because we're not in 1986 anymore. Right. Um, but, you know, I mean, this has definitely been something that's continued all the way to uh, just a couple of years ago, like the big short, you know. Uh, I mean, if, if that movie doesn't make you, your stomach eat itself inside out, seeing the corruption and human folly on display, all for, you know, money and power, I mean, I've got... I kind of think there's probably maybe something a little bit wrong with you because it's awful. I mean, so it it was just interesting to see that here portrayed in the corporation, but that's not the only place we see it too, right? Because we also see it in Burke, Mm -hmm. who becomes the embodiment in the personal view of that. Right. And we saw it in the first alien as well. I mean, like the company sent them to yes, yep, to, to yep. the planet to bring that alien back, right? And uh, I I didn't remember the part where in this film where Burke sent the the colonists to go and find the ship on his own without authority from the company. I had forgotten that part. So that was kind of an interesting revelation seeing this movie for the first time in twelve or thirteen years, however long it's been since I've seen this. Um, and I do got to say, you know, Paul Reiser, I think is fantastic in the role. I think he does a really good job, but, um, yeah, it's, it's a time when people are worried about themselves. I mean, in the director's cut, even they're talking about, and they're calling back to the home base about salvage rights and everything. And we're the people that found this. Do we get to keep it? And the guy's like, as far as I'm concerned, go ahead. I don't care, but you know, I don't have the final say in it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, it, in a lot of ways, this is just kind of like manifest destiny in space. You know, uh, everybody's looking for their claim to set still in in the future, but now on an alien world that's being terraformed. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it it's just a kind of this perpetual thing, and you know, something that is a little bit scary to think that, like, wow, it seems like humanity really hasn't learned all that much, uh, even though we can, you know, travel in space and terraform other planets. We're still just kind of rotten inside. <laughs> yeah, indeed. And science fiction is definitely the place to do it. I mean, Alien was one of the first dark used futures for for science fiction. It was coming at the end of the 70s. And, you know, it was most most science fiction had been basically 
happy kind of go lucky. I mean, you had laws in space and things like that. Star Trek is an optimistic future and stuff, but uh, Alien is was one of the first dark futures, and this this continues that story very very nicely. Yeah, you know, and and what's interesting to me too is just how that connects with old science fiction, you know, um, where you would go to you would go to a planet like Forbidden Planet or all these other science fiction films from back in the day, you know, the serials and stuff. And what you found was usually not good. You would run into some kind of monster. The day the Earth stood still, all this kind of stuff where it's it's always um, kind of apocalyptic, whatever it is that comes from space. You know, even the B movies, you know, the blob and all that kind of stuff, uh, pod people, you know, you name it. I mean, there's just so many movies like that. And what's great, I think, is that Alien and Aliens kind of picks up that idea and just puts a polish on it and makes it something that's really slick and especially i think aliens takes what alien did and it just I, I, you know to me i guess i'll spoil it this is i i like aliens better than i do alien i i don't necessarily know why per se but maybe it has something to do with um i think i really like the characters in this movie uh, a little bit better, personally. I think it boils down to a preference in film genres. Like you said the last time when we talked about Alien, you know, you're not much for the horror genre film. And, you know, this movie is a completely perfect sequel to Alien, partly because it is so different from the first film. This is more of an action film. And I think if you're the kind of person that likes an action film, you'll prefer this one. And if you're the person who prefers a scarier type, you're going to prefer the first version. Like I, I prefer Alien over Aliens, but that doesn't say anything against Aliens. I think Aliens is a flawless film. I think it's a masterpiece. And I think it's equivalent in quality to the first Alien movie. I just prefer watching Alien because I prefer the feeling I get when I watch a horror movie. Well, and, and no, I, I think you're absolutely right. But I think, too, I, I was kind of putting this, uh, I was trying to think through this this today uh, as I was watching the movie. And part of it, I think, was that, you know, as maybe cliched as it is, putting a child in there really kind of puts things in perspective. Instead of the cat. You know? Yeah, instead of the cat. Um, no, I'm not I'm not denigrating anybody's cat. I know people love cats. I'm not saying I hate cats or anything. <laughs> But what I'm saying is, for me, it really, it helps the story. But I, but it also, I, I again, what they did with the characters with Ripley, right? I thought was so fascinating. I think Sigourney Weaver plays the part so well, where she comes back as the person trying to warn everybody, "Hey, this is messed up." You need to stop whatever you're doing and make sure that everywhere that you are is safe. And then we need to look out for these alien beings. And then we need to just nuke the crap out of them. And nobody wants to believe her. And so she kind of ends up this dejected person. And this whole movie really is about her, what I like to call Ripley's revenge, right? Like she wipes them out, all of them just like the emperor said, you know. <laughs> uh, and I, I, I think that, to me, that was an interesting story art to watch. I think it was really good. And so I really kind of enjoyed queuing into that throughout the movie. And it, to, it, her performance and everything that she was doing and just kind of what was happening as you get to that culmination moment where she finally takes out the, you know, the queen mother of these things was fascinating. And I, I love that... 
Uh, they actually use this in Star Wars: The Clone Wars too. Uh, there's a Geonosian episode, couple episodes where they meet the Queen, and basically it's it it's pretty much just alien ripoff, and it's awesome. I mean, so even the she's this big thing that sits on you know the eggs coming out of this larva deal. It's just it's super creep. Um, and yeah, I just I think it's great. I, I I'm gushing a little bit about that, but. For me, it just made the movie work so much in a in a way that I just wasn't as engaged in Alien, and I really appreciated that. Right, and part of it is is it adds this level of symmetry between the protagonist and the antagonist of the film, and that's part of the mm-hmm. reason yeah, why yeah. the director's cut is better because you get this this sense of motherhood and this sense of protection of Ripley towards Newt. And at the end of the movie, it's basically two mothers protecting their families, right? She's protecting Newt. She's protecting her eggs, right? And so they're, they're, they both want the same thing. They want their kids to survive in a nutshell at the end of the movie, which is, so I think that's pretty fascinating. And that's why I think the director's cut works better as well. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. And it is this very strange one species instinct is just to, obliterate everything in its way you know and um maybe that's a subtle commentary on is that humanity's way of dealing with things too well ripley's line in the movie too i don't know which species is more disgusting theirs or ours yeah you know you don't see us messing each other over for a buck or a percentage she says right yeah absolutely i mean they're just legitimately going off the instinct and we're supposed to know better right Mm. um and and yet what i think i'll I'll talk about it but i this might be an interesting case of of are the alien movies kind of a, a way of talking about are humans t- is it total depravity like is you know like are we just like this is our base nature is just to take advantage of of wherever we can to survive you know and and asking that question I think they they really do that and I think for me in this one it really uh, that theme I think came even more alive and maybe that's why I was just a little bit more engaged. Um, and and partly, like you said, Ripley just kind of spills that out, you know, mm. and um, it makes for a very interesting, I think, discussion to think about. And it's challenging, you know, when we look at ourselves in our world today, have we moved farther from this? Like, are we better than this? Or are we kind of just the same as this? And when we look throughout history, don't we just kind of see this same pattern taking place over and over and over again? Yeah, I think it's more... I understand what you're saying, and that's more of a discussion, like, you know, than probably than we should have on we'll this. We'll let Metatrex <laughs> have that discussion, but... Yes. But, yeah, I mean, I think it's happening more now than it ever has, right? But it has always been there, you know, like the the company looking yeah. out for themselves. Yeah. No, definitely. Um, well, and and I really enjoyed, too, and this was, was an interesting thing. You know, I liked how they had all of the different soldiers, and uh, Michael Bean. I thought was fantastic as Hicks, and I really liked his interplay with Ripley. Mm-hmm. And it was, I think, what I liked in this movie is that Cameron doesn't just out and out copy everything that happened in Alien, right? Like, a lot of things are different. And, and what was wonderful was to see that there was actually a person that was fully on Ripley's side the whole time. Like, he he comes to trust her and to believe in her and then do everything he can to help her. Um, and see her as the the person probably with the most brains in the outfit, um, and and what needs to be done. And and I just I liked the way he was played. I, I 
again, I, this was a character that kind of really clued me into the movie, and I had a lot of fun watching. Yeah, Michael Bean is great. I mean, he's a he's a reoccurring actor that James Cameron has used. I mean, he was on Terminator, right? He was uh, John Connor's dad in uh, Terminator, um, which I'm drawing a blank as to the character's name right now. But um, anyways. Michael Connor. It's not Michael Connor, Isn't is that it? it? I don't know. I can't no, remember. No, because it's Sarah Everybody, Connor. Everybody's yelling at me right now, so um, that's fine. <laughs> I can't uh, remember. It. I, oh, I guess I can't remember his name. Anyways, it's bonkers. I, I'm a terrible, terrible Terminator Everybody fan. will yell at us on Twitter and on Facebook <laughs> when they listen to the episode. So I, it's I, we can't keep all this nerd stuff in our head. It's, you know, it's, 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 leak it's hard out to somewhere. remember it all. So. Yeah. But, um, he, you know, he, he plays a very similar role to the role that he played in Terminator, right? Kyle Reese. There we go. <laughs> There you go. We Kyle got it. I knew it would Take that, internet. We didn't need you anyway. We didn't even have to look it up. Uh, I, I'm watching Brandon right now. I just want to make this clear, podcast listeners. I watched Brandon. He didn't go to the Google. He It just came to him. So, Right on. That's funny. Um, he played a very similar <laughs> character to to Kyle Reese in uh, in Terminator. But um, it, yeah, it is. It's, a, it's nice to see a character that is listening to her and accepting what she's saying and you know like I, I get the impression that Burke believed her right obviously he believed her as well he just had his own self-interest at heart uh, but mm-hmm. but yeah. uh, you know Hicks is looking out for the mission as well you know and having all these military people here like this is also a very interesting parable uh, storyline for the future of uh, like a Vietnam story as well, right? Because yeah, yeah, you, absolutely. You've got all these, you know, uh, soldiers who've gone in. They're out of their element. They're being attacked by this overwhelming force that knows the terrain better than them and everything. So, you know, it's an interesting parable story for Vietnam as well. Well, and and it's interesting too because that plays out in the design work. You know, we get things that look very much like you know, Vietnam, like helicopters and that kind of stuff, you know? So yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, and it's, uh, I just, I like this character and I really enjoyed watching him and I think I found him very engaging, uh, in the same way that I found Paul Reiser's Burke very engaging as well, you know, because you want to believe the guy, right? Like you want to believe for so long that he is somebody who's on Ripley's side. When he makes that term, he just becomes that swarmy, you know, snake oil salesman, used car salesman, you know, who's just trying to find a way to make a buck, right? Yeah. He's just he's just completely out for himself. And and the way in which he's out for himself is pretty awful. Like, he is willing to sell his, everyone to the devil, kill them all just to get what he wants. It's it's pretty awful. I mean, he's he's the biggest villain of the movie. It's paranoid delusion. It's sad, really. It, it's pathetic, really. Uh, absolutely, yeah. And he's fantastic in the role. I mean, he plays it so well because I think for a long time throughout the movie, you kind of do want to be on his side. It's Paul Reiser, right? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, um, maybe I just think about Mad About You too much uh, when I see Paul Reiser these days. <laughs> but uh, the old TV show that I'm sure other people listening to this, if you're not old enough, are like, what, what? show? I don't Who, understand. Who's Helen anyway, Hunt? go check it out. Him and Helen Hunt. It was fantastic. Um, Paul, I think Paul Reiser does great. I mean, when I was younger, I thought it was weird because, yes, I also I never watch Mad About You, but that's kind of what I know him from. But I think he's really good in the role as Burke. Um, what's interesting about this film with Burke and the company is we get a lot of our history and what we know about the Alien franchise from this film. Now, 
write in, send us a message if I'm wrong, but, you know, I did just watch Alien, and we don't hear of Weyland Yutani in Alien. That's something that was created for this film, right? We don't actually hear the name of the company. And so this interesting idea of this company is like an everything company. They made the kids' bicycle. They made, like, their food that they have. They're the people funding the uh, the terraforming situation they created the building you know like all this stuff they're they're this multi-corporation and a lot of that all of that comes from this movie it's really interesting i mean you know you're in the 80s when the kids riding the company big wheel yeah, exactly <laughs> <laughs> which just reminded me of riding around on those in my backyard when i was a kid um but no that you're absolutely right it, it's it's kind of a fascinating thing to see and it reminds me a little bit of ghost in the shell where that company is so intertwined with the government and so involved in everything that's happening in the world, this company is similar to that, you know, where they just kind of have their fingers in every single pie. Right, right, exactly. Which, I mean, I don't like somebody else's fingers in my pie. Um, I really like what they did with uh, the Bishop character. Oh, yeah. Um, And, uh, you know, I I think... um, Probably a good idea, you know, as we talk about him to just kind of talk about this whole idea of of artificial limits, because this was interesting. You know, in the first movie, it was hard to tell that it was an android in the first place. And then once it's revealed, it's very interesting. And it feels like the character is somewhat under the control of the company. Right. Right. And they even kind of talk about that because obviously Ripley finds out that this is an artificial and she flips out big time. And she doesn't want anything to do with him. Or the cornbread. And right. And and <laughs> you get Bishop telling her, Look, um, those old units were a little bit dodgy. We've been changed and we have parameters now set. So basically the free will of, you know, themselves, they cannot harm humans. And I just thought that was so interesting that because obviously we got James Cameron here, right? And so his idea is to make sure that they can't go all Terminator on us. Funny you should say that because Lance Henriksen was also in Terminator. But um, the way that they created the Bishop character for this movie was perfect. Because revealing that he's an android at the beginning of the film is perfect timing because you immediately don't trust him. You are on Ripley's side. You've seen the first movie. You know what what androids do. And the, you know... Lance Henriksen, who I love, is such a spooky-looking individual, and he's, he plays this role in such a muted way throughout the whole thing uh, that you you don't trust him throughout. You, that scene when that one guy gives him that delivery, and he looks up, and he's quiet, and he's like, no, I don't need anything. You're not trusting him the whole time. So when he actually turns out to be a good robot at the end of the movie, you're surprised, and that's the twist, is that he is a helpful android. Well, and and I actually really, again, I just like that, that they just don't go the exact same way and that they take this one differently. It was an interesting thing because, you know, especially in the land of Star Trek, you know, we we all talk about artificial intelligence, you know, is something sentient or not. And and definitely it feels like that these androids are not. Uh, they're not sentient in that, that way. You don't get that feeling. Uh, and they're very much just tools to be used for the company in different uh, in different ways, but even though they're artificial, they still have that desire to to want to continue to live. Um, and uh, yeah, it just it it created a really interesting thing about you know 
you create something, do you have the ability to take away free will and, and all that kind of stuff? And, and I just liked that question uh, that comes along with Bishop, but I also like that the question in the end is not whether or not he's the good guy, because he is a good guy. Um, and it was it was more fun to not go down a familiar road to, to try another road with the androids here. So, um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing, too, because they've always kept the androids, I feel like, in these films. And, you know, Prometheus has one. We're going to have another one. And, and uh looks like an alien covenant as well. So that always seems to be one of these things on the ship. They never really seem to answer, I don't feel like, why. Like, what's what do they do that, that they're so needed? Um, you know, you kind of get that feeling in Star Trek why you'd want data around, right? Because you can do all these computation stuff so fast, but I don't know. I never got the feeling like they're data type thing. Um, so it, it it's interesting in the, in the lore of aliens. I don't feel like that question's really been answered yet. Have you seen Alien versus Predator? I have not. Okay, don't watch Alien versus Predator Requiem. It's brutal. Like, if you want to watch Alien vs. Predator Requiem, like, just stab yourself in the eyeballs right now with whatever blunt object is nearby. But Alien vs. Predator is not bad. Um, and in it, Lance Henriksen is in it, and it actually takes place now, like in the 97 or whenever it came out. And um, he is Wayland in it. And so they model the android after him. It's kind of interesting. But that's just more beyond lore that is... Like, yeah. Hmm, that is interesting. I, it, it make, again, it makes me wonder like a what if like the the androids are all like the eyes and ears of the company? Wayland. Well, not just the company, but whoever's like fully in charge, like, you know. But yeah, like based on the timeline, I'm guessing that Lance Henriksen's character is dead. Like, because of how far in the future I'm assuming Alien and Aliens take place in, and the fact that Alien versus Predator basically takes place in modern, modern times, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that would make sense. That would make sense. The, the one character, and, and it's so hard to put a kid in a film and have them be really good, but I did think that, uh, Carrie Henn as Newt did a, a good job, very serviceable job as newt and um again as i said before i think i liked having a child there because there's something about where you put a kid in danger and it just raises the stakes exponentially and i also liked especially with the special edition the interplay between her and ripley and that you get this connection that in some ways, Ripley has the opportunity to be a mother again when she, you know, uh, she lost that opportunity with what happened the last time. Uh, we didn't mention before, if you're listening to this and you've never lo- seen Alien or Aliens, that at the end of Alien, she's been adrift for 57 years. Oh, yeah, yeah, we, yeah, we didn't mention that. And so when she gets back, she finds out that her daughter has died. Um, because basically she's time traveled because she's been in cryo sleep, and so uh, it, having this character of Rebecca or Newt uh, be there and allow her to experience motherhood again 
And, you know, this movie kind of ends with the hope, I think, for everyone that they'll be able to go back to Earth and she can have a daughter and raise that daughter. You know, you, you, you kind of end this movie with that hope as they're both in their cryopods. And so... And Alien 3 uh, does such a wonderful job of burning all that hope right at the beginning. Yeah! Which is... <laughs> yeah, why? Well, don't want to talk about Alien 3. Um, So, no, absolutely. Uh, but no, she's a great little actress. And uh, I, I really I really liked the way that, that she portrayed the, the character. And I think she did a good job, especially since this was her very first... Um, you know, major film, you know, she'd acted in commercials. That's pretty much it. So she didn't really have any acting experience on a big movie screen. And I think she does a a very good job. Yeah, I'm very happy with her. Like, it's hard to get kids to act, you know, kids can be very wooden sometimes. And, you know, they just recite the lines that they have. But, uh, you know, this this little girl did a really, really good job. Um, I'm, like, the fact that you have her from here, from California, I, I thought I heard a British accent in her voice a couple of times uh, when she was talking. Um, and I know that they filmed it in England, so I just assumed uh, that she was a, an English actress, right? Um, but, you know, to see that she just didn't go on with it and just this was her real only real major role and she became a teacher is pretty fascinating, right? Yeah, no, it is actually really cool. Uh, and uh, she did re- receive a Saturn Award for this movie uh, for Best Performance by a Younger Actor, so that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And it is interesting, too, that she... I wonder if it was just something where it just didn't end up being the thing that she wanted to pursue, um, you know, became a teacher. That's awesome, though. So uh, not many people in this world kind of give that up and uh, pursue something else like that. That's, that's fantastic. Uh you know, a lot of the Marines uh, kind of all flow together, but the one who I think stands out a lot is Bill Paxton. And I wanted to ask you what you thought about Private Hudson. I, the first time I saw this movie, like the first several times, like he's really one of the best things about the movie. He's funny, his lines are funny, and, you know, he adds that comedic tension release that you really need in a movie that's this intense right because you're laughing at just about everything that he says right game over man game over and uh i mean like that's been parodied who knows how many times right it's it's bonkers at how often that that line has been said but you know watching it this time i found it a little bit more annoying and a lot of the lines are such james cameron lines you know, like a lot of his characters talk in this way and a lot of these Marines talk in a very James Cameron manner. Like it's it, it's well written and they're good lines, but they're just a little bit heightened and a little bit beyond what I think actual people would, you know, that quickly quip off the off the edge of their tongue, you know. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I, I think it, it, what it is is it feels like today a Joss Wheaton film. You know, where everybody has the exact right quip at the exact right time. And they set themselves um, up to get burned, you know, like, hey, Vasquez, you ever been mistaken for a man? No, have you? Like, it's just they just set themselves up to be burned, you know? No, I I absolutely agree with you. Uh, You know, not having seen this movie in in legitimately years, I found his character to be obnoxious. Mm -hmm. Um, I I didn't think it was funny anymore. I I guess um, maybe one time I would have but i i just don't think he's very good in the movie he's it's too over the top you know like if he had pulled it back just a little bit i think it would have come off as more realistic right uh, but he's just so out there you know i i get it 
And you do. You have characters like this all the time in, in different movies. Uh, you know, I, I think, um, you know, there are characters like this, too, <laughs> even in, uh, like, Starship Troopers and stuff, right? Um, and, uh, or uh, I think of, you know, just recently, uh, that came out last year, Hacksaw Ridge, you have the guy, Hollywood, uh, who is this super buff dude, and he is all into his appearance and, like, how tough he is, and when he gets onto the battlefield... You can't handle it. Uh, and this is that character. But it's just so overplayed that you're like, I just kind of want you to get eaten first. <laughs> yeah, I would, ag- I would agree me. with that, yeah. But I mean, like, there's, I'm still laughing at a lot of the stuff that he says. You know, a lot of his lines are, are pretty funny, you know. But, you know, it is, it's, it is a bit over the top, I think. What did you think? Uh, so this is a really interesting thing because just like the music was kind of an issue in the first movie like with... Uh, Jerry Goldsmith having a hard time working with. Whoa, whoa, whoa! He's one more person we got to talk about. If you jump into the music, we got to okay. one more person. And I, I okay. can't believe you didn't put it on the thing here. Vasquez, right? Uh, Jeanette yeah, Goldstein. Yeah, no, I, I, I just, I don't know. She's, she's okay. Oh, um, I didn't Goldstein? really find her all that interesting. Okay, so I'm gonna about to, I'm about to pull your mind. Okay. Okay. The Excelsior Enterprise B. She's the communications officer. Oh yeah. <laughs> I totally forgot about that. And she was also in Terminator yeah. 2. She was John Connor's uh, foster mom. Oh, uh, okay. So she's okay. also a oh, reoccurring, yeah, you're right. reoccurring yeah. uh, character, actor for Canada. Yeah, you're absolutely right. There are definitely uh, connections there then with other things. But I and this film, I mean, she was just kind of the... I, did, I, I wasn't interested in her <laughs> as a character. Um and maybe just because she she played a, a stereotype, right? right? Yes, you know yes. the, the super tough uh, girl in the in the group who uh, there there wasn't much else to her, uh, unfortunately, which is actually disappointing. You know, I feel like Ripley gets such character growth, and she's so interesting in this movie. Uh, you know, I feel like they they kind of give um, Hicks a lot to do in here. It would have been kind of nice to to give like one more female character because there aren't very many in this film. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would have been nice to have her just have a little bit more to do than just kind of be the super tough chick, you know. Um, but it is funny that you mentioned that now that I'm like picturing her in those other roles and that's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so we get to an a thing that's very interesting in the sense that Alien movies seem to be plagued by problems with the director and the composer. And James Horner also seems to have had a heck of a time uh, with this movie, partly because he thought he was going to have about six weeks to write the score and that was going to be fine for him. But the movie wasn't finished editing and they kept changing things. And even up till like he had to write a whole scene over again in one night because Cameron completely reworked it. I mean, I would be pretty upset too. Yeah, this is the score for this movie is chopped up quite a bit. Like in the in the original theatrical version, there's only like two two tracks that are in the actual place that Cameron or that uh, Horner intended. That's the main and end titles. And the only track that's uh, played in its entirety is uh, Bishop's Countdown. Well, and it it's interesting too, and uh, maybe this answers the question: having so much trouble of why he just repeated a lot of the thematic elements from Star Trek II and the kind of the horror music he wrote there with Khan and all, 
in the battle sequences and reused those themes here because maybe he just didn't have time to devote to really digging in and writing something that felt more fresh. You know, you got so little time, you just kind of go back to what you had that worked. And it works here. I mean, the, the thing is, is that he... The music fits here very well, I think. Mm. Um, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just interesting that you can hear tons of Star Trek II in this movie. Well, there's a couple of parts that I think are a little on the head, but I think I think it's not Star Trek II that you're hearing. I think it's more Star Trek III that you're hearing, and it's more like the Klingon cruise music, right, that you're hearing near the end of the movie. And the Well, I mean, it's the... I think, I mean, it's, I think it's a combination of both. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, because there's the there's some of the Mutara and Nebula battle that's in here, and there's some of the the super creepy music for Khan that's in there. But yeah, I think there's also a lot of that Klingon, right? Which was only mu- yeah two years maybe before this that he did Star Trek Three, right? But um, there's one of the tracks that I like when he goes into that snare drum track where it's like. And it's like that military march thing that he's doing and stuff. I think it's a little on the head. Um, but one of the tracks that we do have to talk about in this is Bishop's Countdown, you know, which is the the end piece. It's played twice in the film. It's played when they leave the planet and it explodes. And it's played again when Ripley's climbing out of the uh, uh, the escape hatch that's sucking out all the air and whatnot. It's that... Like that really crazy action cue. Like that was that track was played in like every eighties and early nineties movie trailer ever. You know, like that track was used over and mm-hmm. over and over and became a staple of my childhood. Like I knew that song before I ever knew Aliens because of just mm, seeing so many trailers, you know? Yeah. That's so funny you mentioned that because there are those those movies that have the soundtracks that they end up using in like every trailer for like 20 years it seems like yeah. and you don't know what original movie it came from but it's in the trailer kind of uh like the uh theme to dragon heart was used in so many trailers right right and i never knew what it came through until i saw dragon heart i was like so this is where that music is from yeah yeah, yeah. uh no no i that's that's always funny to, to have happen and um I, Again, I think that the music, it works great. It was just very interesting to see Horner have to kind of dig back in, reuse themes he had used before. And I, I, I'm i guessing part of that has to do with the fact he just doesn't have a lot of time. Yeah. I mean, you know, and... However... Like, like you... Yeah, and, and like you said, he's completely... We were talking about he's rewriting an entire scene right. overnight because Cameron has been like... Well, I kind of reworked it, so yeah. sorry about that. But he was still nominated for Best Original Score for this, even though yeah. it, like the, his score was butchered for the film, you know? Yeah, exactly. And I that, think that, that speaks to that. Horner's music has a real gravitas to it, I, I believe. is, a, And I've always enjoyed his his themes. I've always enjoyed his music. Um, and I have a bunch of his soundtracks beyond just Star Trek, mm-hmm. you know? whether it's uh, the Spitfire Grill or um, Braveheart, of course, and things like that. I mean, he, gosh, uh, the Rocketeer. I mean, it, the list is endless. Yep, so, yep. Um, Well, I kind of lastly just really want to talk about, you know, the look and feel here because the movie does a good job of following the original 
But I do, it, it is interesting because you can really see the James Cameron sensibilities and the way that he works. Yeah, uh, lots of miniatures. It is, yeah, and it's different than than the way that um, Ridley Scott works, and it's not bad. But I think the, the, the camera movements are really quick. The cutting can be really quick in places. And uh, I, I thought it was, was nice. I actually loved the miniature work. Mm-hmm. I thought it was really well done, and that helped sell a lot of things. Uh, with the the vastness of space, but then also when you get up close, you, the the ships feel really big, you know. And I liked the design work as they were kind of like we talked about referencing, you know, things from Vietnam and that kind of stuff. Uh, with their and well, you can also see some Terminator influence in there too. Uh, so yeah, I, I and heck the the aliens obviously this time having so many years between them, they look so much better in this movie. They move so much better. Uh, I think all the alien work is is pretty stunning. They're they're very different looking than they are in the first movie. Like they're they're a little more gray than they are black. Like in the first movie, they're all, it's a pitch black alien, right? And I I like the look of the first one myself over these ones here. And there's this kind of weird like things that are coming out of their backs in this one. Like these, it, it makes me think of like a church organ with these big organ pipes coming out of their their backs that they've kind of got in this movie that's not my favorite stylistic choice for this film but yeah that's it no that's interesting um i this i I think part of it was just that when they were in more light that they looked more quote-unquote realistic Uh, and part of that again it's just because we have a lot of time between what 79 and yeah like seven years yeah and yeah, they've got a lot, and a lot has happened in, in special effects uh, to, to make things better. But uh, I also thought that the queen design was just, it, it just amps that up, makes it just super creepy. Right, right. Um, and, uh, but my favorite shot actually in the movie is when they're first walking, the Marines are all walking through, uh, looking for all the colonists, and they're kind of slowly making their way into that area where all the alien stuff has kind of started to grow on the walls. And one of the characters just passes by and then the alien moves its mm-hmm. head out and you didn't even see it there really before. Uh, and that to me was my favorite shot just because it's, it's, it was really well done. Uh, and it, it uses all of the Geiger her work and how it all flows together with the aliens. I just, I really liked it. it was there's stuff. one, we didn't mention it last time, but there's a shot kind of like that in the first alien movie that I really love. It's when, um, um, oh, what's the guy's name? What's uh, Harry Dean Stanton's character? Um, he goes and he's looking for the cat. And he's going through that oh, area yeah. with all those chains and those chains are like jingling and stuff. Mm-hmm. And he's like, that water's going on his face and stuff. And it does a couple of shots where you look up, you kind of look upwards and it's backlit. And it's mm-hmm. not in all of the shots, it's just in one of them. But there's one shot when you look up and if you see the movie multiple times, you could see the alien hanging from these chains. And it's not a long mm-hmm. shot, but it, you don't really notice it. Right. Well, and and that's what, you know, I, I think is so... It's so fun about the kind of the design work and the way it's done because, you know, the aliens fit within the environment that they create to be able to hide themselves so that when prey comes walking into their door, they don't, you don't realize that it was just right there all along. 
and uh, the the way that they have evolved in that sense, it's it's so good, and it really it it works really well. And so, yeah, I it's one of the things that I really enjoyed about this movie. And so, um, yeah, I, you know, we've kind of already said where we are uh, with this one, but um, I'm wondering what rating you would give um, Aliens. It's I, I think this movie is equally as good as Alien. I love it. I think it's a masterpiece. Um, I think it's, the again, the reason I prefer Alien over Aliens is just simply because I prefer horror movies over action movies. But this is almost a perfect sequel. And I love the way that James Cameron took it. I loved what he did with this. I love the characters that he created. I love the stylistic designs that he chose. And I'm probably going to give this, I believe I gave Alien a 9 out of 10, and I'm going to have to go with the same with this one here. Like, it's it's almost a perfect film, and, and uh, I would happily watch wow. this at any time. Where I wasn't as involved with the other movie, with Alien, I, I like this one better. And I think it's uh, I think it's a good movie, uh, you know, and it it's still not something that grabs me so much in the way that it does so many other people. But I'm more invested in this one and definitely it's a four out of five, you know, um, alien eggs for me, uh, which, I, you know, I meant to ask you uh, is just we'll, we'll talk about this right now. Was it interesting to you that the aliens seem more destructible in this movie? Like, it's easier to kill them? I just blame that more on the weapons, like these military futuristic weapons. Um, I never really felt that... Like, they didn't have the the weapon technology in the first movie to be able to attack them, because that's not what they were set up for, where these military officers are designed to go in and, you know, kick some butt. So I don't think that they really that were more point. destructible. I think if Ripley had these guns in the first movie, she would have been able to... Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, absolutely. No, I think you're... At, uh, that makes complete sense and i don't know why i hadn't thought of that yeah. before so um i yeah this has been a blast to, to just to get to sit down and talk with you about and hopefully you know it, when we get to, to alien covenant it'll be a good movie and so uh which i hope for every movie that i sit down to watch so uh, <laughs> really want to thank uh the the associate producers we have through the the uh patreon service with uh ken Tripp and davis grayson these guys are fantastic, and they really have been with us for so long here in the 602 Club, and their support really has meant the world to me. Uh, and so I uh, really thank them for that and want to direct you over to patreon.com slash trekfm. And it's a huge network, as we were talking about earlier. You know, We're a feature provider there on iTunes. We have so much going on. We have a show almost every day coming out for you. And uh, we just can't do this alone. Uh, it's just too big, and so uh, we need your help. Go to patreon.com slash trekfm and, and you can see how you can support us. We've got so many different ways that we give back to you for different levels. And honestly, look, every little bit helps. So every little bit that you can do, that's all that matters. And, and that's really what um, makes this network run is you. And so, and that's why we do it. We're here for you. We want to entertain you and, and, and have a good time doing it. And so uh, we appreciate all that you do for us as listeners. And, and it was our goal is to keep doing that for you. So... Uh, Brandon, uh, before we get out of here, let everybody know, uh, you know, where they can find you if they want to talk a little alien, maybe uh, with you or uh, I mean, you've got so much else going on. So uh, what projects do you want to pimp? You can find me on Twitter at Brandon Matella. And uh, if you look on the Trek FM Twitter site over the last week or so, I've been doing a, a daily Twitter poll on a various Star Trek topic over the 
all over the franchise. And uh, you could find me every once in a while poking my head up in the Babel Conference. And as for podcasting, I host Melodic Treks, which is all about the music of Star Trek. And that's here on Trek FM. I also co-host Warp 5, which even if you're not an Enterprise fan, you should check the show out. We've been doing a lot of great interviews with actors and writers. And we even had an interview with Manny Cotto, who, uh, who's a producer for 24. Um, and he did the last two seasons of Enterprise. So that was episode 100. Um, but we had a great interview with Tucker Smallwood on episode, I think it was 106 of Warp 5, but uh, uh, check it out. Even if you're not an, a Star Trek Enterprise fan, we're doing some really great stuff over there. And just tonight, before I was podcasting with you, I recorded the third episode for our Alfred Hitchcock podcast, which is called Good Evening, and will be released very, very, very soon. Um, you can find us on Twitter at Good Evening Pod, and in Facebook, just search Good Evening. Goodness, my friend. Uh, I don't know when we have time to sleep between What's the two that? of us. So. Yeah, I, I don't know. I really don't. So, you can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. You can also find me on Instagram at MRushing. I'm here on the network with Chris Jones doing the orb with Deep Space Nine. We do hope to be back to that soon, so just keep your fingers crossed. I'm on the Nerd Party Network uh, talking Star Wars with John Mills, where we talk uh, just everything Star Wars that we possibly can. We, you know, just two guys hanging out talking Star Wars. It's a lot of fun. Owl Post with Drea Kaufman going through each and every chapter of Harry Potter together. It's so much fun. We're almost done with the first book. Uh, I'm looking forward to hitting up uh, the Chamber of Secrets. Last but not least, don't forget, uh, you can find Star Wars a 602 Club collection. So if you're a huge Star Wars fan and you can't get enough, obviously we uh, love Star Wars here too on the 602 Club. And we have a whole feed just dedicated to that. So make sure you check that out as well on iTunes. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now, you hear? 